This is Chair. I'm your host Nemanja. And let's go back to the previous week episode with Jelena Medović from Philip Morris. Well, Philip Morris has embarked on a transformational journey itself. So the company is changing uh, uh, as we speak with a range of uh, heat not burn products and the new technologies that we are bringing to the market. So this innovation that we are bringing also means we need to innovate in the way we talk to our consumers. And this is where digital uh, comes in. Well, I think we've done a really, really good job. And this is not just uh, my team, but really the company as such has uh, uh, incorporated this kind of fast-forward thinking. You know, we're uh, uh, we have learned that uh, instead of you know uh, launching, going big, and maybe failing big, it's really great to be able to test things because agility is about doing things differently. It's not about doing new things that will come as a, as, as a you know byproduct, but it's about doing things differently. So it really requires a, a mindset shift uh, in the organization. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore new worlds, to seek new civilizations and new life forms, to boldly go where no one has gone before. I quoted my favorite chapter from Star Trek, uh, Jean-Luc Picard, because today we are going to talk about some innovations, biggest innovations, space innovations and uh, how they are influencing on the, spa- on the international law or, to say, right, space law. On this subject, I have a great pleasure to welcome Anja Nakarada Pečulić, founder and CEO of Serbian Case for Space Association. Uh, Anja, as long as she can remember, was fascinated with stars and planets and wanted to go up there. Uh, but uh, life rooted her to become a lawyer. Uh, by a very coincidental chain of the events, in her third year of law st- uh, studies, she took a lot uh, elective course of space law because of extra points, and uh, she was blown away. So today, now six years later, uh, she's finishing her PhD in space law and started to work in actual space. So, Anya, welcome to chair. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, when I realized uh, that there is a Serbian space, Serbian case for space foundation, I was amazed because uh, how Serbia can have any connection with space at all. That that was the first thing that I thought started to think about. Um, so my first question to you is uh, how you decided to pursue this abstract idea and by that to create. Serbian Case Space Foundation. Thank you for the question. So I like to think that uh, space has to do with every country. So even if you say that maybe Serbia doesn't have to do with outer space, I think that outer space has to do with each and every individual and country on this planet because it belongs to all of us. And for that reason, we should all care what happens in outer space and how can we use this technology for our daily life. Now, I was pretty lucky after my legal studies to have a, an opportunity to work at the European Space Policy Institute and also to do two very interesting internships in the German Aerospace Agency and the European Space Agency. And there I was 
as you fascinated by the fact that you don't have to be a space power. You don't have to have rockets and, you know, big space bases and um, so many satellites already in orbit in order to utilize the space technology. So, for example, uh, satellite data that um, we can use from open sources is something that in agriculture or in urban planning or even in market predictions we can use nowadays. So the idea came from this, that we can utilize something that's already out there and that's becoming a total necessity for modern day governance because now you want to reach decisions which are educated and which are very precise. And in order to do that, you want to have the most accurate data and satellite data is one of the most accurate data that you can have combined with other data that's on the ground. So we were like, okay, let's then <laughs> spread the gospel and say that, uh, well, um, explain here as well that you can use that. You can use that in the private sector to come up with new solutions and optimize your own products and services but also on a more higher level, on the state level, there is no reason for Serbia not to join the space club. I mean, nowadays we have around 95 countries that are in one way or another involved in space activities. And these are not all super rich countries. Uh, on the contrary, we saw that like Bangladesh launched a satellite or Ethiopia has launched two satellites. So why not Serbia to at least start using the data and come up with some innovative solutions? And that's how the idea for the foundation was created, to raise awareness what you can do with uh, space capabilities and to make a network of all the relevant stakeholders, so from academia, government, private sector, and to try to convince our government that there is a case for, for space in Serbia and that they should... And draw. how's that going? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always a bit tricky. We have been able to, um, to open some discussions with our government. Um, unfortunately, I cannot say that now, by now we have some tangible results in the sense that they joined organizations that we were trying to convince them to join. But at least we see some initial interest in opening the channels of communication. Uh, we here talk about innovations, even though I, I haven't started our show today like that. I, I quote Jean-Luc. Uh, so I wanna, which, is which is innovative, yeah. Let's innovate here as well. Um, I want to ask you, uh, uh, probably like every other organization, you have some challenges that you are facing. You just mentioned one. Um, but I want to ask you, uh, uh, do you use some kind of innovations to tackle those challenges? I would say that innovation is the name of the game. Like you have to be constantly um, agile as well. Like you have to adapt to the situations and to the obstacles that we are trying to overcome. So let me give you one example that we did. Uh, we were trying as a foundation to become a member of one European institute, center, European Center for Space Law. And they said, well, you can't do that because Serbia is not a member state, so you can't join as a foundation. 
And then we started discussing with them and they decided that they're going to open like a new uh, version of membership, which is the Friends of the center. So we became the first friends. Okay. <laughs> so in that, in just to answer your question, yes, absolutely. You have to find innovative ways how to, how to deal with the situation that Serbia is not a member or that the government is not that interested or the private sector thinks it's too much, um, too much to invest and not, and not so much to get as a return. But we're, you know, finding creative ways to bring it closer, to explain that there is really a good reason to to join this domain, which is the future, and you don't want to be behind. And when next question is regarding the space law. And when I, whenever I say this word, it's, it's, uh, it sounds so interesting, but this is something that is your personal domain. It's your in PhD thesis. Um, before we uh, enter deep in this subject of the space law, how it started in the first place? I really like the origin story of space law because I think it's very interesting how this this branch of law, which is a part of international general international law, um, and it's considered one of the one of the peaceful. Um, fra- legal frameworks in the sense that it it eased down the tensions between two superpowers. It came as a product of a very, very conflicted period because it, it was um, negotiated and drafted in the period of Cold War. So in the moment where the two superpowers were racing each other, who is going to be the first to space and were not thinking about norms, once they developed a technology which proved that you can launch a missile in outer space, so it doesn't go through airspace, but it goes up, and that means everyone is a fair game, they said, okay, this is way too dangerous. We need to sit at the table and discuss some norms because this is not going to go anywhere. So they were, they were scared enough to sit and listen to each other, and they decided that the best neutral ground to do that is United Nations. So they tasked the United Nations to form a committee that's going to be the one in charge of developing the first norms. And that was just a year after Sputnik was launched. So in 1958 um, was the first ad hoc committee, which became then a permanent committee from next year. And it grew from um, starting 18 members to 95 that we have today. And they were the one in charge who developed the five treaties that we have that regulate all space activities and are compiled in this little cute blue okay. book. Um, so are you going to limit that as a, so I can research it a bit? Of course, of course. <laughs> Great. Um, I got some present from, from, from this chair talk. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure to give norms to, to other people, yeah. Um, the first treaty that was adopted, the Outer Space Treaty, that's considered like the constitution when it comes to space activities. And all the main principles are regulated there. After that, um, all the later conventions that came, they were just developing the principles that were already that were already in the Outer Space Treaty, or some of them, they were developing it further. 
And there was also an exchange um, between the superpowers that wanted uh, another treaty that was saying how you have to return astronauts and fallen objects. And then the less developed space nations that were, okay, we're going to give you back your astronauts and objects, but we want you to be liable if you make any damage. So there were also trade-offs in these negotiations, and that's how we got five conventions. Um, so those are like basically principles of those. But yes, so yeah. five conventions, and since the 79 and the Moon Treaty, which was the last one, we don't have any new international convention regulating. So more than 30, 40 years? 40 years. Oh, I can imagine that new things are going to arise fast since all the things that are going on right now in the in the space yes exactly you imagine right uh, i want to before we, we move to those innovations i want to go back again on, on a personal side and uh, um, can you share with me how how you how you made this decision to pursue this unorthodox career it's very interesting to, to, to ask, since uh, when I started to research for this conversation, I was blown away by the idea, because it was new to me. I think that somehow uh, space law found me. I, I didn't even know as well when I started studying law that there is such a field as space law. And by pure coincidence that I had to... Uh, get some extra points in order to have sufficient to pass the year. I was looking at the list of courses and I saw space law and I thought, wow, this sounds interesting. I'm just going to do it. And I really loved it. Like, because it was um, so interesting to see the, the nexus between technology and law and how innovative this field was in order to predict how the technology is going to be developing and how the country have to agree on principles that were completely novel to to law to international law at that time and on top of that i feel like this field has a very humane aspect to it because you're trying to preserve you're trying to preserve outer space not only for for current um generations but also for future generations so you have this futuristic element you have this humane element yeah. you're also trying to protect the outer space environment so that you can use it um not not like cramp it with um you know satellites and then say well the next 20 years we can't la launch anything new so you have to have consideration for other players it's one of the areas where even now where there's a lot of political tension between different countries. You see that cooperation in space hasn't deteriorated. Russia and, uh, and US are still cooperating and they have, a, together with other partners, the International Space Station. So it has a very, like a very positive element to it, which I think um, then multiplies on other fields if you take then the space technology and say, okay, we're going to use this also you know, in in our governance and our planning and this, because you have to cooperate. Uh, it started, as you said earlier, from from Cold War and uh, from the arms race from from that that period. And after that, after uh, Iron Curtain went down and Cold War stopped, uh, it developed. But uh, lately, uh, we can 
hear lots of talks about uh, space military, uh, especially in the States during the Trump era, they, they started. So even though it's a peaceful uh, initiative at this point, uh, um, it sounds again that there is an arm race. How this is influencing the, the space law at this point? Uh, you're very right. So there is a principle that says that um, all space activities should be, the exploration, exploitation should be conducted in peaceful, uh, for the peaceful purposes. But saying that it should be conducted for peaceful purposes doesn't prohibit um, military activities in outer space. So you can launch a military satellite, you can like you can use the technology, but the idea is that you don't use it for any aggression. I mean, there is a lot of debate about this. Gray areas. Gray areas, interpretations. And of course, you we can see how with different administrations, different interpretations come come to light. But I'm hopeful now with the new administration that the Space <laughs> Force is not going to be a thing. Um, in Europe, definitely, military aspect is... Um, not as strong it's more scientific and exploration but yes if one big superpower makes a space force then others are also watching that and probably are going to follow so uh, Jean-Luc said uh, uh, space is the final frontier and uh, innovations that are in this domain can profoundly uh, influence uh, humanity in profound ways. Uh, what challenges space innovations are uh, bringing to the law domain? Uh, and how you guys innovate to uh, encompass all the issues that can arise? That is a very good question. And it's one of the biggest issues now in the space law community. Because as mentioned, the last international treaty that was adopted was 40 years ago. Now you can imagine how much technology has developed since. Like, we cannot compare yeah. today's space activities to the ones 40 years ago. And all of these technological innovations and new types of space activities are bringing with them a lot of legal questions. So one, one thing to be clear, you always need a space lawyer. Whatever <laughs> you want to do, you need a space lawyer. So you will leave your car here for, for any case. Exactly, exactly. Um, but unfortunately, there are no um, binding answers that I can tell you that the lawyers have come up to these new questions. So there is a lot of room for interpretations. And we see two trends that have been developing since 40 years ago. One is that states are doing, are regulating by their, with their national laws, space activities. So ju just to, I'll go back just one thing to clarify. Even though you have private companies doing space activities, uh, always a state is internationally responsible for every activity. So if you're a SpaceX, you want to launch something, you need to apply for a license in US because you're a company from US. And then U.S. is going to to check if you're if you're um, respecting all the rules that exist on an international level. So even if you're a private company and you would say yes, but I'm not the one who is who has to abide by the international law because I'm a private company, because the state is responsible for you, you still have to respect that. So. Now, going, going back to what I was 
trying to explain is that states are now regulating activities in their national law. And then you have some states that are going further than other states think it's allowed or that are interpreting existing legal principles in a very creative manner. So saying that non-appropriation principle is one of the main things. So you cannot own anything in outer space. It belongs to everyone. It's res communis. So you cannot go there even when you put no. the flag. It doesn't belong to you. Um, that, that's my piece of land. Right? <laughs> exactly. No, it's your flag, but it's not your piece of land. And now you have private companies that want to go and extract minerals. And then that's the question. Is that ownership of the minerals that they're taking? Or is that still just exploration? Is that still just for scientific purposes? What if they want to sell it back on Earth? Who has, Do they have to pay to someone or not? Do they have to share their contribution? So many questions. A lot of questions. And each thing that is being developed which we are all enjoying and watching, you know, with a lot of excitement, lawyers are thinking, oh my God, <laughs> new question that we don't have an answer on an international level. So many, many um, legal voids at the moment. And I think we'll be forced again to sit down. Um, when I say we, I mean the states will be forced to sit down again at the table and to really find new binding rules uh, on an international level where they agree because otherwise space is something that um, can only be utilized if there is if there is cooperation and you can't have egoistic um, behavior there because you're too dependent on the other players like if i launch a satellite i want to know that the other country that launches a satellite is going to respect my orbit because, because everybody loses everybody loses Yes. Uh, I want to use some plastic example. Uh, earlier you uh, mentioned SpaceX and of course Elon Musk is always there. As a visionary or a madman we are going, not going to discuss that. Uh, but uh, he's a startup Starlink and uh, let's uh, use example of Virgin and Amazon uh, space tourism initiatives. Can you give me uh, examples of Uh, how these specific innovations that are right now, right there, out there, uh, how they are uh, influencing uh, uh, space law? Um, yes. So, for example, Starlink, there's several issues with that. One is that he wants to launch 40,000 satellites um, to have the global coverage of of the planet with internet, which I think is a brilliant idea, great, um, hopefully we will have global coverage. But the question is, if he utilizes, if, to put so many satellites in orbit, you need to block these orbits. And then there is a question, there is a freedom of exploration. And then if one company has all these slots, is that still freedom of exploration for other? players or is he then in a way uh, doing something which is not allowed and that's appropriating these orbits because no one else can come to that but if we say okay that's going to be regulated by the international telecommunication union okay that's fine then we have the question what's with space debris it's a big problem um, we still don't have technology that solves space debris issues and 
I know that SpaceX is saying they're gonna have the the latest technical standards to to deorbit the satellite or to move it um, or to burn in the atmosphere. But putting forty thousand satellites like increases the risk for everyone. No, you cannot there. control it. I think Elon Musk thinks that he can, but <laughs> that's a story about visionary yeah. madman. But okay, yeah. Third, which is one very specific legal problem, but in his terms of services, which he already published for Starlink, and if you look at that, what it says, like, you know, the ones that you have to click, it says that the governing law for the Starlink services is the Californian law for, the, for everyone on Earth who is using that. But if you're using it on Mars or somewhere else, there is no law. Because it's a planet where no law from Earth is applying, which is totally wrong, because we have space law, international space law. And here we have a private company, which in terms of services is saying that space law is not applicable if you're having the service on Mars. So that's very contrary to the current legal principles that we haven't simply not allowed. But I mean, they put it in the terms of services. So it's a big question what's going to happen with it. Are they going to have to change it? Is this going to initiate discussions? Um, it will be interesting to see. And on Virgin Galactic and Bezos, Blue Origin, sending, save, sending private, um, private personnel to outer space brings one of the questions, how are they treated? Are they astronauts? Are they customers? Because if you're an astronaut, you have a special status. And as I mentioned, if you would fall down, they would have to give you back. Yeah. Like There are certain um, benefits that come with the status of astronauts. But if you're a passenger to outer space, what status does that give you? Also, it is said they're going to have a waiver of um, liability. So if something happens to you, uh, they are not responsible, which is different to, for example... Uh, airplane crashes because there you don't have the waiver of responsibility but can you really as a company ask someone to sign off that if something happens to you if you lose a life that no one is responsible it's yeah. a it's a big it's, legal question an ethical question as yeah. well yeah maybe you can use that when you're jumping bungee but <laughs> with this i'm not sure it's applicable uh, I like. I love to finish with the future question, uh, but um, all this conversation, I feel like we already left 21st century long ago. Uh, nevertheless, uh, tell me what will be the biggest challenges for the space law in, let's say, next decade. In the next decade, I think space debris is going to be one of the main issues that will have to be regulated because we see now even some uh, private companies that are developing technology to go and pick up the trash in, in orbit. And here again, we have so many legal questions. Can you move someone piece, someone else's piece without asking them for permission? What if they don't give permission? What if you move it and you hit the third uh, flying object? So a lot of questions, none of them are resolved in a binding way. And I think that's one of the first things that it's going to be have to um, be negotiated. And also where states, I think, have more of a mutual interest to, to sit down and regulate. I think these um, activities as mining 
space mining and sending people or even further to make a permanent base on moon and mars i don't think it's in the next decade but that doesn't mean that law should wait because law yeah. is really slow i need to be prepared they need to be prepared and you don't want to first have the technology and then uh, set the rules i think you need at least to start thinking and discussing them way before and then when the technology comes you know how to regulate it so that we still have outer space to use in the in the 20 decades and not only in the next decade uh anya thank you so much for this conversation it was so inspiring and for you out there uh if you haven't subscribed i will again quote Jean-Luc, make it so, and uh, see you next Thursday when we talk about some new innovations. Thank you.